0: Welcome back to the Stronger by Science Fireside Chat series. I am your host, Greg Knuckles, and I am joined today by a special temporary guest host, Eric Trexler. Eric, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. Uh, thank you for the
0: opportunity. How are you doing? I am doing well. Um, let's let's hop right into things, I reckon. Um, so there is another podcast where my special guest host for today, Eric Trexler, hosts Uh, I have occasionally been a guest host on said podcast. It's called the Stronger by Science podcast. And there is a good news segment uh, that we've used at the start of several of our, well, several of his recent uh, Stronger by Science podcasts. And as I understand it, there is an update to one of the prior bits of good news that you shared with the audience.
1: Absolutely. I, I like to think of myself as a journalist first and uh, a scientist second and a <laughs> fitness professional third. So as a journalist, I wanted to make sure we, we provided an update here. Uh, and one of our listeners actually sent me this update, which is pretty cool. So a while ago, I mentioned uh, that a young woman named Eleanor Leloux, I think that's the, the correct pronunciation. She was running for um, a, a position in the municipal government uh, in, in a town in northern France. Um, and she has down syndrome. And one of the reasons she wanted to run was to make sure that someone in the the government there was advocating for people with a variety of disabilities. And the good news update is that she got elected, which is pretty sweet. So, so she's now on the municipal council there and, uh, by all accounts doing a terrific job.
0: Hell yeah, that is good to hear. All right. So, uh, if you haven't listened to a fireside chat before, these are, kind of like off topic q&a type discussions so anything is fair game other than fitness questions Um, so you know listeners send in questions or topics they'd like us to talk about and today uh, we have several picked out and the one we're going to start with is a listener asked what our take is on the open
1: science movement Uh, do you want to lead off I do, but before I get into my take on it, do you want to give the listeners a general idea of what the open science movement is?
0: Yeah, so the the open science movement is, is less like an organization, I guess, and more just kind of an orientation towards how one would approach the scientific process and interact with it. So kind of the traditional process of academic science for most of the 20th century and you know up until today has been that basically every part of the process is kind of opaque and cordoned off um so you know like researchers collect data no one sees that data except for the people who are actually writing it up and publishing it uh peer reviewers do peer reviews but then their peer reviews aren't accessible to the readers so you know only only the authors know what the peer reviewers had to say Um, journals are behind paywalls so if you don't have institutional access it's difficult to access scientific articles Um, and basically everything is just kind of behind paywalls or not accessible or very very opaque and the open science movement is kind of an effort to bring all of those things more into the open. So, you know, things like uh, pre-registering, um, pre-registering like study methods and analysis plans beforehand so people can like go back and check like, hey, did they actually collect the data the way they said they were going to and analyze it the way they said they were going to? Um Another aspect is open data. So if you publish a a scientific article, you have to make your data available and uh, the code you used to statistically analyze it available. Uh, Another big thing is preprint servers. So before, so like, you know, you collect your data, you write it up, and then before you actually submit it to a journal. You basically write it up as if you are about to submit it and then upload it for free to a preprint server so your peers in your area can have a chance to read it before it's published, uh, give you feedback on it, et cetera. So basically it's it's just a movement whose intention is to take a lot of the kind of cordoned off and opaque parts of the scientific process uh, and try to make them more open and accessible and transparent.
1: Yeah. So when I think about the open science movement, um, you know, I, I think of really just the overall process of how peer review works. You know what I mean? Um, and, and I will be transparent. My faith in the peer review process right now is at an all time low, uh, within the last two weeks alone, I've been sent the three most ridiculous papers I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, and the funny thing about that happening. So, uh, you sent me two of them and somebody else sent me a third. (laughs) And these were papers that it was not in the fly by night journals that no one's ever heard of. We're, We're talking about journals that are indexed in PubMed and all three of these articles. I looked at the title and I said, well, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. And then I looked at the abstract and I said, no, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. And The interesting thing about all three of these papers is they were sent to me. I'm not an expert in any of those topics. And immediately I knew they were ridiculous. And they were so ridiculous that they essentially went viral. (laughs) And within the two weeks that they were sent to me, all three of them were either retracted or the journal said, hey, we are going to retract this. We're in the process. And so I think that begs the question, if, if me, as a, if i as a non expert took a look at the title and said this is the dumbest thing i've ever seen what the hell did the peer review process do for those papers you know what i mean if it was such a ridiculous premise that it went viral because of how insane it was
0: yeah, so j- just just for context here uh you know we're we're not talking something like oh a paper was published showing that calories actually don't matter for change in body weight or something like something that is clearly wrong, but like, you know, maybe someone just had some anomalous data that they wrote up, whatever. We're talking shit like there's a black hole in the middle of the earth that is using like alien DNA to communicate with the DNA in our cells. And that's doing something. Yeah. Like, and that was completely
1: off the wall bullshit. And that was on PubMed, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. it, It was in a journal that is PubMed indexed that is at least theoretically peer reviewed.
1: Yeah, and so I think one of the things that I I find to be really troubling with the peer review process currently is, like you said, a lot of the processes are opaque, and we are basically funneling the entire decision-making process down to usually two people. And you'll hear stories of researchers who tried to publish a paper eight times, and then the ninth time a journal accepted it. And part of me would like to believe that that process, those eight or nine iterations of the paper, were them receiving very good, nuanced, constructive criticism, them addressing it, improving the paper, and moving on to the next journal. But part of me wonders if it's just reshuffling the deck, you know? So, so in psychology, they had the replication crisis, right? And part of that was uh, part of the reasons that some of their results weren't reproducing well and being replicated effectively was some of the studies can be done so quickly and so easily with minimal resource input that you could run an online survey, didn't get what you thought, run it again, reshuffle the deck. And in in a different way, but kind of analogous way, I kind of wonder with some of these, like that when the peer review process is opaque, you can just keep reshuffling the deck of reviewers until you get the two who just can't be bothered to look at it and will just accept something like that. And it's, it's just, uh, yeah, I, I think the more eyes we can have on the process, the more open the data are, the more open that the, uh, comments from reviewers are, uh, i think that's going to be a really positive thing so that instead of putting this very critical decision on the shoulders of two people that can be continuously reshuffled we have more eyes on the situation and we can develop more of a consensus where many informed people can look at it from many different informed perspectives and say uh you know yeah this is some really high quality work here are some caveats here are some limitations so from that perspective alone, I, I think there's huge benefits w- with the open science movement. I, I, think, uh, I, I think having more eyes on the work and on the data will allow us to develop a better uh, consensus and a better group understanding of exactly what those data mean and exactly what they don't mean. And I think it would help reduce ridiculous stories like the one I just told, right? Where, mm-hmm. where you're just like, dude... If you ran this by people who had any interest in it and any like <laughs> any perspective on this, and it was more than just like two people who just like clicked accept at five a.m. on the bus on their way into work, uh, we could probably avoid some of those ridiculous situations. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is an interesting concept is the idea of like you, know, you mentioned preprint servers, right? So you do the research work. You put it on a pre-print, preprint server, and now it's accessible for free, and, and people can, can look at it and provide feedback, provide commentary. And I wonder if that, if that process became more common and universities would actually uh, give you credit as a researcher for publishing a good preprint. At, at that point, you wonder kind of what the need is. For journals and for this uh very opaque peer review process, because the work is out there, and experts can provide open commentary on it so i I think uh to kind of put my perspective in a nutshell, when I think of the open science movement, you can name many benefits of moving toward a more transparent process with more openness um not to mention the just the ethical consideration when someone makes a very important health related discovery, who's allowed to learn about it. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really messed up thing where it's like, eh, I can tell by the title that there's some critical information here that's relevant to my health, but who's got 40 bucks to drop on it? Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that. that's a really weird thing that paywall journals make us wrestle with. So yeah, I mean, I can think of all these different Upsides in terms of the ethics and the quality of the work. And I, I can't really think of that many downsides in terms of shifting toward a more open uh, perspective or an open process toward science. And so I'd, I'd like to consider myself to be a pretty open-minded guy. So my question for you is, what is the downside? Like wh- when people take the opposite perspective, what is the most common justification for saying no no we need to slow down this open science thing
0: so there there are a few things um one is a concern that i've heard that i like initially disagree with and then log on twitter and then start agreeing with is the idea that like if uh if if papers are too open and like the quote unquote unwashed masses have access to them that uh, you know they'll basically just do like a very poor job of interpreting those papers and wind up with with bad information being disseminated. And therefore to improve the signal to noise ratio, like you need like the quote unquote experts in the ivory towers to be the ones doing the work be really the only ones who have access to the work. Who can give the like quote unquote correct interpretation, um, and and like I said, I I do think that that's uh, both like insulting and misguided. I, I do see where it's coming from though because you know there there are times where like w- when a new study in fitness like sports science is published. I will see some just like just horrendous takes on social media, um, or like criticisms of the paper that people wouldn't make if they understood how like data collection worked. Um, so I, I, on one hand, I do kind of get that that potential criticism, but I I, I think that the benefits of uh, of allowing stuff to be open still far outweigh the drawbacks um another another criticism that i've heard is that um in this is like kind of a theoretical criticism for open data the idea being that like if you have to make your data available when you publish your paper um someone else might be able to snag that data set see like oh there is another you know th- there is another hypothesis that I could approach this data set with and then write up those results as if this was mine and as if I collected these data um, and the thing is I don't I'm not aware of any cases of that actually happening of basically researchers stealing other researchers open data Um But I also feel like that would be a relatively straightforward process to address, um, especially if open data was the standard.
1: Well, because they'd have to share the data that they... Correct. Yeah, Stole.
0: So I, I think that that is a theoretical problem if you're operating in a system where a minority of journals have open data policies and the rest don't. So, you know, you could make your data publicly available and then someone else could publish from that data set in a journal where the data is not required to be publicly available that could conceivably happen but if if open data did just become the standard and someone else publishes quote-unquote their data set and it's identical to yours you could be like okay come the fuck on like i i see what's going on here you know yeah so i i think that that's a potential issue with the current system, but it wouldn't be an issue if if there were systemic changes.
1: You know, I I know that I put you in a tough spot because I asked you, it's like debate team and -hmm. you got put on the the debate team that you didn't necessarily agree with. So I asked you to make these arguments, but I think one of the interesting thing about those arguments is that it kind of operates under the assumption that the current system does a good job of preventing them. Mm -hmm. And it just doesn't you know so like like for instance the idea that only the the you know ivory tower expert should be you know handling this information and disseminating it well the ivory tower said that there is a black hole in the center of the earth but twitter said there's not and well, now it, it's retracted
0: at least one person in the ivory tower <laughs> right and, but, and and one section editor took a peek at it said well this is worth sending out to reviewers and two reviewers looked at it and said, yeah, this is cool.
1: Right. But but like I said, that was in the period of two weeks, three separate papers that the ivory tower let through and Twitter said, dude, are you kidding me? Yeah. And then there's like, oh yeah, we can't really defend this. And then the other thing you mentioned of stealing data, I've actually uh, seen some very fascinating stories of that happening uh, in the uh, in the peer review process. So mm-hmm. I've actually... Seen a number of stories. there it, It's a pretty remarkable thing to do in a bad way. like it, it's a pretty extreme case, so it's not like there's stories all over the place. But there have been instances where because the process is opaque, reviewers have looked at a paper that they've been assigned to review and said, You know this paper's so damn good, I might just make it my own. And they <laughs> reject it as yeah. the reviewer, and then they steal it and publish it in a different journal. So they submit someone else's work throw their name on it and there have been instances where some poor researchers have been sitting in their office they open up you know open up their their email and they say wait a minute that's my paper Yeah, (laughs) you know so like the thing that i find interesting about those arguments is that it it kind of assumes that the current system does a really nice job of preventing those things Mm -hmm. and i'm just not sure that it does
0: no I, i i agree um So there, there are a few more, uh, criticisms of, of the open science movement. One of them, um, so this next criticism isn't necessarily about like the open science movement leading to bad results and worse quality of published research, but more, more like, uh, researchers wanting to, to not have as many threats to their reputation so one of the things with open data and open code is that if 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 there's something wrong with your data, not necessarily saying that, you know, it's like fake data or something like that, but, you know, just simply you collected data, you had a methodology for collecting it, and maybe you just calibrated a machine poorly, you know, and now your data sets open and someone who also has expertise with the equipment you used to collect the data can look at your data and say, well, I see what happened. Like you have some weird findings because that machine was poorly calibrated, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, or if you make your code public, th- this is something you bring up all the time. Um, like there are, uh, <laughs> one of the most common softwares to analyze, like t- to, do statistical analysis in our field is SPSS, um, because you don't have to write code for SPSS, like as a point and click software. Um, and there are certain analyses that like SPSS just doesn't do, like certain interactions and post hocs that it, it just can't get at. And then people will say in their statistics section, like, oh, we used SPSS and these were the results we got. And you'll just like lean over and be like, dude, look at this shit. <laughs> they're they're saying they did this particular post hoc. They used SPSS. I know good and well SPSS won't run that post hoc test or won't make that comparison. And so the thing is, like, if code had to be open, like SPSS is point and click, but it it does also spit out the code that it ran. Um, people could look at that and say, Hey, you said that you ran this post hoc and did this post hoc comparison. You literally can't do that. In the software you said you used, Um, so you know maybe you just misinterpreted the SPSS output, Uh, and, and so in a situation like that, you know nothing nefarious is going on. Like you miscalibrated a machine, you misunderstood a statistical output. Like those are those are innocent mistakes that people make, but they would, you know, probably necessarily result in a correction if someone could look at the code, look at the data, and say hey, there's a simple error here. You need to issue a, a correction. And one of the problems with the current journal system now is that issuing a correction is a huge pain in the ass. Um, and so, like, you know, people... I, I think that there's a thrust to not make that stuff public because if it was public, more corrections would just necessarily happen. mm mm-hmm. uh, and that's, uh, that's more work for people who end up needing to correct their papers. And also, currently, and I don't agree with this at all, but currently uh, having to issue corrections semi-frequently is kind of seen as like a black mark on your CV, um, which which I think is not great. So, you know, if you have to issue corrections for every paper you ever did, okay, maybe you're not a very careful scientist and maybe that should be perceived as a bad thing. But, you know, if you have to issue a correction on one out of every five papers you published, that would be seen as an extreme rate of corrections under the current system. But also, like, that seems perfectly reasonable to me, because, you know, like, people make mistakes, you know? And... and Maybe one out of five would still be quite a bit, but even like one out of 10, that would still be seen as an extreme correction rate. And, you know, people make mistakes sometimes. And I I don't think that making occasional mistakes should be penalized, but it it currently kind of is in the current system. Uh, And basically like open data, open code, there would be way more corrections that would be issued. But the thing is like in other fields, that has actually been super, super important. Um, so one, uh, one example in the field of economics is a couple researchers, uh, Reinhardt and Rogoff published a paper, um, basically showing that when government debt gets too high, subsequent GDP growth over, I think the next decade was slightly negative. Like they're they averaged like a 0.1, percent decrease in GDP over the next decade if, if memory serves when government debt was more than 90% of GDP or something like that. And so like that finding kind of became the largest part of the evidentiary basis for like austerity uh, projects that various governments undertook after the financial crisis and um, but the thing was, like <laughs> the the reach the researchers, Reinhardt and Rogoff, like they weren't acting maliciously. They're not fringe people, like they're they're big time serious economists. And they were using an Excel sheet that their data was in. And when they did that calculation, they just simply accidentally didn't like drag down and select all of the rows that they were supposed to to run their calculation on. So I think there were like 18 or so countries in their data set and they accidentally only selected 14 and when they analyzed the data from those 14 countries they found a slight decline in GDP if government debt was too high and when they selected all of their data they actually saw a 2.2% increase in economic growth over the next decade Um, you know which just like completely harpoons their finding and I don't I don't have any hot takes on government austerity. Like, I'm not an economist, but the thing was, like, literally millions of lives were affected by that by that finding, which was a simple error. Like, I don't right. think that they that they were acting maliciously, and people found that out way after the case. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the re- the original finding was in like 2006, 2007. Um, people basically like recreated the data set and recreated the analysis in, I believe, 2013, but a lot of the austerity policies were put in place in like 2008, 2009. Um, so like, you know, that's something that could have been found and corrected in five minutes. Mm -hmm. If the, if the journal that the original finding was published in had open data policies, because it was, it was a simple Excel error and that's, that's all there was to it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean that <laughs> th- that would have been a very momentous correction to have been made. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. So you you know this, statisticians follow me around in my life. Mm-hmm. There's some weird thing going on. Every person I interact with is is interested in stats. So like, I, I took a horseback tour through the Smoky Mountains once, mm-hmm. and and the tour guide was a retired statistician. So like, I was riding through the mountains on a horse just talking about Bayesian statistics. Like, Mm -hmm. so the reason I bring that up, the guy that I have always coached with, with special Olympics is also, you guessed it, a statistician. The one lesson that he just burned into my brain was, listen, Eric, you're a careful guy, probably too careful. (laughs) You should relax a little bit. But if you ever make a mistake on a project, analyzing data, it's going to happen in Excel. It's the data entry. It's the data calculations before they go into the stat software. So, like you bringing that up is like, dude. When I collaborate with somebody on a project, I send them a multiple-page document telling them how to arrange the data. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, don't touch anything. Like I, <laughs> like I'm going to handle all of the any calculation. It's script-based. We're not dragging and dropping because people mess up drag and dropping. You know. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, so, I mean, that story is the most believable story I've ever heard, but it, it, like you said, it's a great example of if some of these processes were just more transparent, it would have been picked up like that, right, you yeah. know, and, and could have prevented erroneous policy fr- from being put in place, which is, which is really crazy.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the, the last common uh, objection that I hear to the open science movement uh, from time to time is just that it would, so so, so some of the open science policies would wind up being more work. So um, for example, one of the things that's becoming more and more common is pre-registration of study protocols. So I mentioned that before. Basically, there are repositories where you can say, hey, we're gonna do this study. This is how we're gonna collect the data. This is how we're gonna analyze the data, yada, yada, yada. And so then, when the paper actually comes out, uh, people can check, you know, the methods of your paper and how you analyze your data against the pre-registered protocol to see, like, hey, did you actually collect this data and analyze it the way you said you were going to? Because one of one of the problems with science generally is that um, when when researchers have too much leeway about how they collect and analyze their data, they may find that like their primary actual hypothesis didn't pan out like they didn't get the statistically significant result that they were looking for and so like they find some other significant interaction in their data set and then they write up the paper as if that secondary thing was actually what they were looking for in the first place um and like the null finding then goes unreported uh and so you know if you're doing a meta-analysis or like a systematic review after the fact that that null finding isn't mentioned anywhere, but like it, you know, it happened, it existed. It should be included in a meta analysis. That's trying to look at all of the studies ever done on the topic. But, uh, no one knows that the study was ever done to actually look for that primary outcome that was never reported, you know? So, so that's one of the issues you can run into without pre-registration. Um, just basically if, if you give people too much leeway when analyzing data, They can find a lot of shit, you know? Uh, And so, one of the things with pre registration is it is another step in the process. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of kind of like paperwork and busy work that goes into science. You know, it's not all just you're in the lab eight hours a day working with subjects, collecting data. Like, you have to write grants, you have to write up protocols to send to the IRB. Uh, you have to write up your results after they come in. Like there's there's a lot of writing and a lot of people don't like writing. And so if you're pre-registering a, a study protocol, that's one more step you have to go through before you actually begin data collection. And also if you um, you can run into like some logistical issues with IRBs as well. So you know, if you uh, if you get the protocol approved and then you say, okay, like the protocol set in stone by the IRB, they've approved it. Now we're going to write it up for uh, like to pre-register the protocol. If the IRB comes back, like, you know, let's say you had a training protocol and a couple of your people got hurt and you have a very conservative IRB and they say, hey, you know, we don't want you hurting all of these human subjects, you need to, you need to change your training program that you're using in this study. Um, it it might look sketchy to go back and register and like change your pre-registered trial protocol. And like, it would be completely innocent. Like you're making a change that the IRB is saying you have to make, but people might look at that and say, Ooh, these people are changing their pre-registered protocol. Like are there, uh, are there nefarious aims here? Um, So in in all of those things, like it's just adding another step into the process that I think a lot of people don't want to have to deal with. Another very comparable thing and what I think is one of the coolest and best innovations in scientific publishing probably ever is registered reports. So one of the issues I mentioned before is, uh, well, I, I didn't mention it by name, but I alluded to it, is the concept of publication bias. And so within the current system, journals are more likely to accept basically like exciting findings. And exciting findings tend to be statistically significant findings in the direction that was hypothesized by the researchers. And so if you have positive findings like that, they just wind up being easier to get published. And like just null results in general are harder to get published. And so what you can wind up with is is basically a body of literature that is biased in the positive direction towards a, towards a particular outcome, just because the positive studies are the ones that are more likely to get published. Uh, and oftentimes like, uh, you you mentioned psychology specifically, and I think that it's worse in psychology because the studies do tend to be a lot quicker, easier, and cheaper to run. Uh, you know, you, you can wind up with a problem where null results researchers don't even attempt to publish them in the first place because they know it's going to be a pain in the ass to get them published. Maybe they've said publicly that they believe in, you know, whatever statistically significant finding they expected to see. So like null results might be slightly embarrassing. And so, you know, you just wind up with like a skewed body of literature with way more positive results and way fewer null results than have actually occurred so one of so what a registered report is is instead of submitting instead of submitting the paper after you're done with the whole project you know after you've collected the data after you've analyzed it and written it up and then submitting it instead of that it's basically like pre-registration on steroids you write up your study protocol you write up your data analysis protocol you submit that to a journal and they and the journal says this looks like a cool and interesting study that you've proposed uh, we like your methods your method of analysis seems sound regardless of what the results are they will be useful and relevant to the people in this field who will read this journal and then they accept your paper and then you do the actual experiment the data come in you analyze them and the paper is already accepted so you know it will get sent out to reviewers again because you know maybe your discussion sections just batshit insane and they're like okay you need to tone down the discussion but the paper itself in principle is already accepted um and so if you get a null finding it is already published you don't have to worry about the journal rejecting it so it helps uh it, it helps completely eliminate the problem of positive publication bias um but again, going back to the problem people have with open science of it being more work, you know, now instead of submitting a paper once, you're submitting it twice. And I would argue that on net, it registered reports actually save effort. Um, because basically, you're probably going to deal with fewer rejections of uh, of null findings. Like, you know, you mentioned like, having to submit a paper to eight different journals and just reshuffling till you get reviewers that are are good or who like you. Um and, and and when people do that it could be nefarious, like maybe they just did a very very dumb stupid study that shouldn't get published and they're just fishing for reviewers who will accept it. Or it could be that they did a very good careful study that had no results. And just, like, reviewers keep rejecting it because they're like, ah, this, this is fucking boring. We shouldn't accept this. Um, and so, like, I, I do think on net it probably does save time because, you know, you, you get the paper accepted on the basis of the protocol itself. Um, but it, it does add one more step that you have to go through before you actually begin data collection. Um, so that that's another reason that uh, j- just, like... <sighs> various steps in the process where effort is added that's that is a drawback uh and i mean i i don't think that that's an adequate reason to reject open science because you know ultimately if it's more work but you wind up with a better body of literature that seems like it would be worth it but there is also kind of a lot of busy work that goes into science in the first place and so so i understand people not being super stoked about it
1: Mm. Yeah, and I I do know quite a few people who are editors of journals, like associate editors. And so they're the person with the job of tracking down reviewers for Mm -hmm. a paper. And I would bet that, you know, despite what you mentioned in terms of reducing the number of total rejections, potentially, I would bet that a lot of associate editors, they hear the idea, okay, I got to get reviewers to review the methods and then review the finished product. And they're like, absolutely not. <laughs> Cause like, yeah, dude, every friend I know that's an associate editor, like every six months they just like send out a tweet saying like, no one reviews papers anymore. <laughs> <Like> they're, <laughs> they're so sad. Cause like they keep sending out all these papers to get reviewed and they, everyone's like, I'm not going to review that. Yeah. And so I, I bet the editors are a little bit nervous about the idea of having to get a paper reviewed twice.
0: Do we want to also talk about how stupid the idea of uncompensated peer
1: review is? Sure. I mean, it seems pretty self-explanatory, right?
0: Yeah, dude. So th- this is something that people who haven't done any science may not be acquainted with. Um, there's a good question to ask of what do journals do? Like, what value do they add? Um <sighs> And I can't tell that they actually do in any way whatsoever. So, you know, basically you have uh, an editor-in-chief of the journal and there are are associate editors or section editors and theoretically how the process tends to work is papers are submitted, the editor-in-chief takes a peek and they say like, okay, like just looking at the abstract this is a paper that like the subject is germane to the interests of this journal or it's not. And if it's not, they say, Oh, well this might be a, a nice paper, but submit it to another journal because this isn't really what we publish. If it is something that's, you know, within the scope of the journal, they'll send it out to an associate editor or section editor and say like, Hey, this is your problem. Now. Uh, this kind of seems to be like, th- this seems like it would fit in the section that you edit. Um, So take a look at it, see if it's worth sending out to reviewers. So the associate editor will take a peek, you know, not do a full review, but just basically determine, like, is the quality of this work worth sending out to reviewers or not? And then they find a couple of reviewers, they send it out to the reviewers, and the reviewers really do the vast majority of the work. Uh, They're supposed to essentially go through the paper with a fine-tooth comb you know, make sure that the the method section makes sense. make sure the results are reported accurately. Make sure so theoretically, a reviewer is supposed to make sure that all of the sources you cite are correct and support the points you're making. I don't think they do it most of the time. because <laughs> no I see so many miscited papers, uh, but that's theoretically something reviewers are supposed to do. and And basically, like a good review is supposed to take a long, long time. Um, like, I mean, one of the, basically our job for mass is peer reviewing papers that have already been published and we don't write up mass articles as if they were a peer review, but we look at them as critically as we would if we were peer reviewing them and then, you know, try to break break the study down and in a way that's going to be accessible to people. Um, But I mean, I can tell you like every paper reading it with that level of like concentration and detail, like it takes hours, hours, many hours. Yeah. And, uh, and peer reviewers aren't paid like that. Peer peer review is a completely uncompensated endeavor for, you know, a job that might take you five or six hours for every paper you look at, um, which to me is just batshit insane. And so... We've talked about issues with the peer review process. If you wanna check out an interesting paper, uh Richard Smith, who was the longtime editor of the British Medical Journal, um he wrote an article called Peer Review: colon, a flawed process at the heart of science and journals, uh, that's worth checking out that goes through a lot of the the issues with peer review and just like problems that peer reviewers miss, coming from someone who was a journal editor who relied on peer reviewers for a long long time saying like look the peer review system doesn't work very well and the thing is that i'm not throwing shade at reviewers here because like you shouldn't expect it to work well there's no there's no incentives that would that would cause you to predict that peer review would work well basically the the incentive for doing good peer review is the pride of a job well done uh and then the cost is tremendous opportunity cost because the better job you do the more time it takes and uh you're not being paid for your time and you have a lot of other shit on your plate you know and so like yeah it's not surprising that most peer review like most peer reviewers don't do a good job kind of through no fault of their own because why the fuck would they do a good job you know yeah um and so, like, ultimately, the peer reviewers are doing 90% of the work that the journal's doing. Um, they're not getting fucking paid for it. And the people who are making money are, like, the actual publishers. So, you know, if you, uh, if you subscribe to JSCR, Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research, and you see that, like, William Kramer was the longtime editor Bill Kramer didn't get rich off of editing JSCR. Like, no journal editors get rich off of editing their journals. Like, a lot of them are uncompensated, and the ones that are compensated aren't compensated much. Uh, Like, Wolters Kluwer is the publisher for JSCR. Wolters Kluwer is making the fucking bank off of it. Um, And so, like you know, not just the reviewers, like the editors also aren't getting paid much, if any. Uh, there are copy editors that get paid, which, you know, is why you don't see like that many typos in journals. Um, (laughs) but yeah, like there, there are copy editors and typesetters that get paid. Uh, most other people who are doing the vast majority of work in the process don't see a fucking dime for it. Um, and so like, yeah, no shit peer review doesn't do a good job. Uh, do, do do you wanna do you wanna go through um, some of the things people say like to argue against compensating peer reviewers? <laughs> because uh, it's, in my opinion, this is the funniest shit.
1: Yeah, let's go for it. So one of the criticisms I've heard, or the the argument against compensating reviewers, is it's just simply too sweet of a gig. So if you compensate reviews for these papers, then people are going to take on a ton of reviews and do a terrible job so that they can make more money and just do a bunch of very superficial reviews, um, they're going to be laughing all the way to the bank because of the scheme they've got going on and there is no way to possibly handle that or deal with it or reduce its likelihood of happening. That, that, that's the one that I've heard that is is pretty wild because like Greg, you know, we operate in the real world. Mm-hmm. We have a business. When's the last time you thought you know, we need the service done. But if we pay someone to do it, I think they're going to do a way worse job.
0: Yeah, they'll do a worse job if we pay them for it. And we as intellectual dumbasses could not possibly ascertain whether they did a good or bad job. And if they do a bad job, we will have absolutely no choice but to continue to hire them to keep performing that service over and over again. Like, dude, that's, that's not how any of this
1: works. (laughs) Yeah. Dude, like the, the, uh, the response to that potential issue is literally as simple as set a price point that makes any sense at all and just make sure they did a good job. Someone already has to do that. Like you already have an editor who's determining if they did a good job or not. If you find someone who's taking on a ton of reviews and doing an awful job, you just flag them in the system and say, Hey, don't, uh, Don't send them papers anymore.
0: Yeah. And, you know, if you have someone who is accepting every review that comes across their desk, getting paid for it and doing a really, really good job, like, cool. Let that person get fucking paid. You know, (laughs) you'll wind up with a system where a disproportionate number of the reviews are going to people who do a disproportionately good job of reviewing papers. Oh, what a fucking problem. You know what I mean? Like... (laughs) Dude. And it's so it's ridiculous, too, because I know we've mentioned this on the podcast before, but but scientific publishing is such a racket. Like it's it's a system where the people who do virtually all of the work don't get paid for it. Um, But they're kind of like peer pressured into doing it because, you know, like theoretically, it looks good on your CV if you've done a lot of Of reviews. It looks really good on your CV. If you've been an editor or associate editor for a journal like that's, uh, that's part of like the service requirement that comes along with most academic jobs. So you're not being forced to peer review and you're not being forced to be a journal editor, but like there are, there are ways that you're strongly cajoled into performing, uh, a lot of unpaid labor. Uh, in the publication system and so the people doing virtually all of the work aren't getting paid a cent for it and the people who actually own the journals are are working with absurd profit margins Um, so like Elsevier's profit margin is close to 40% Springer Nature's profit margin is like north of 35% Uh, Taylor and Francis, 30% plus. Wolters Kluwer, 30% plus. Like all of the major publishers have very, very, very comfortable profit margins. Um, And the thing is like they're making enough money to pay reviewers. Like they could put more into the system. So here's the problem with like journals... Primarily being for-profit enterprises, like if uh, if they were basically being run as services, which which is how it used to be actually. So if you go through the history of scientific publishing, w- what used to be the case is that basically um, scholastic societies would say like, hey, we're interested in physics, and you know we're going to put out a journal that that details findings that our society members have made. We're not going to run it for profit or like if there is profit, there's not going to be much. And then uh, this dude named Robert Maxwell, who is just like an all time piece of shit. Uh, He had already like made a fortune in magazine publishing and was basically just like, what if I used this exact same model? um, But all of my workers were dumbass academics who didn't expect to get paid and I could like peer pressure them into doing all of this work for free and basically use the increasingly less profitable magazine model to make bank off of these dumbass academics that don't understand how the real world works. And like very, very cynical move worked like a fucking charm. He built an empire off of it. He made a ton of money from it. Other people said, wow, Maxwell's model works really, really well. We're going to do the exact same thing. Uh, and like, you know so in the span of a couple decades these people who like didn't actually care about science uh realized that they can make a quick buck off of completely changing how publishing works they did it and like now that is by far the dominant model in the market um and, and, and- you
1: you explained this to me a few weeks ago and i was stunned at the time frame in which it occurred about when did did this transition occur
0: i'm pretty sure it was like immediately post-war
1: yeah and, so and like, so
0: people people act like you know public is if you talk to any researcher they do have complaints about the publication system no one likes it but they're like you know this is just the way things are it's the way it's always been and it's like nah dude like that's not how things were up until world war ii and then like immediately post world war ii People said, let's make bank on this. And it just completely changed the way that publishing
1: worked. Yeah, because, you know, I, I was in academia and everybody would complain about it. But, but everybody would say, well, it's just always been this way. And there couldn't possibly be a different way. Yeah. I would have thought that that was the system that has literally existed since the dawn of time. No. I, I had no idea. Um, but, you know, there, there is a, a little anecdote that kind of puts all of these topics together so um a couple months ago for mass i was reviewing a paper it was a meta-analysis and one of the cool things about meta-analyses is the data are more or less open whether you want them to be or not Mm -hmm. you know so like we we talked about having open data sets for original studies well with a meta-analysis your data is the published literature so it's open right And so you and I, we work together most days. We were sitting at at the computer and I was like, I literally opened it for the first time. I was like, check out this error. You know (laughs) what I mean? Like 30 30 seconds into opening the paper. And so I looked into it. Of course, it was an error. It was a huge error that just screamed and jumped off the page. And it was a journal that actually publishes the, the reviews open Mm -hmm. access. So it it is kind of a step toward that open science model. You can actually read the reviews. You don't know who wrote them, but you can see what the reviewer said. And dude, like two out of the three reviews were a sentence. I mean, a sentence or a couple sentences, (laughs) Um, not a single comment about the methodology, not a single question. Hey, how come, what happened there? (laughs) You know, like, and if you had ever seen a forest plot or a funnel plot in your entire life and considered what it was telling you. Mm -hmm. The first thing with the review is you'd you'd probably like, honestly, you'd probably email the editor and be like, come on, why'd you send this to me? Yeah. But at the very least in the review, you'd say what in the world happened here? Mm -hmm. And it was a perfect microcosm of the fact that open science matters and allows us to detect errors that might cause us to make inaccurate conclusions But right now, the safeguards in the peer review process are not there. The the reviews we're getting are not adequate. And why would they be?
0: I mean, there's also the question. Now we're getting into the topic of like predatory journals. There's also the question of whether those reviews actually happened. Uh, Because, you know, it very well could be that the journal did not send it out to any reviewers. And they just like... You know, the associate editor just typed up like two sentence reviews. Like, I, I'm not saying that happened, but uh,
1: I think th- they, I that think they... that
0: does. I mean, that does occur. Like, that's what predatory journals are. They claim to be peer reviewed. They're not actually peer reviewed. Like, you submit a paper, you pay the author fee, and then a week later, you say like or like the journal will email you say. Hey, we sent it out to reviewers. The reviewers said, this was tip-top work. Your paper has been accepted. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that does also happen.
1: Yeah, based on the reviews, these reviews definitely happened. But, but you could tell it was one of those things where it's like, you know, we, we've sent an email out to a bunch of people. They all declined. Mm-hmm. Uh, we found someone to say yes. That person who said yes. Dude, academics, they work hard. Yeah. So this is a person working 70 hour weeks, just trying to, you know, just trying to make it in the academic world. And on top of their 70 hour week, we've asked them to very thoroughly review this and look for every possible error that could exist uh, and and sign off on it. And they probably did it at five in the morning or one in the morning or, you know, 11 p.m. after they put their kids to bed. And it just it was like, yeah, it was like a sentence or two, just like, I guess it's fine. You know, so it's it's an issue that I think open science, uh, would certainly help with.
0: Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I have been, uh, I've I've been playing the con position on this so far. You, uh, you talked about some benefits. You asked me to talk about issues that people have with it. I think it should be clear. I think that the problems posed by open science, um, are so much smaller than the benefits you actually gain from open science. Uh, I think that I, I think that that a lot of the reason why science isn't more open, I think there's a lot of institutional inertia. Um, you know, people have been operating in the sciences in a particular way for the last 30 years and a seismic shift towards open science would, you know, basically force them to change a lot about how they do things. And I think that uh, a a lot of the older people, not necessarily like trying to be ageist about this, but they're the ones who have more experience within the current system. And it would be like, and they're the ones who have, who tend to have the most like institutional power. And so I think that there's a fair amount of inertia from kind of more experienced academics who don't want to make these shifts. Uh, I think that, I think to some degree, uh, the the reluctance towards shifting to open science um, m- might be driven by fear, almost. Um, so th- this is something we've talked about before. Like, very... It's pretty uncommon that like a data set is perfectly clean that like every, you know, every less last instance of data collection went perfectly smoothly. And I think, you know, I, I think a lot of people just, I, I think that there's a lot of, uh, oh, what's it called? The, um, not the bystander effect, <sighs> What's it called when basically you think everyone is better than you? The imposter, imposter syndrome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that there's a fair amount of imposter syndrome where, yeah. you know, people are doing generally good work and their their data set is like 95% good. But like they know that like, ah, eh, you know, maybe there were a couple errors in data collection. Like maybe I have some missing data and I don't want to put my data set out there because you know, th- then I will be the emperor without clothes and people will see that this data is not as clean as I could make it look in my results section. And they don't realize that like everyone's data would pretty much look like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I, I think that there's some, some resistance, especially towards open data for that reason.
1: Um, well, in, in one comment there, you mentioned there might be errors in the data collection, but also like, consider this. If you listen to this podcast, you probably lift. Have you ever misgrooved a rep? Yeah. Do you think that completely untrained untrained people are more likely to misgroove a rep? And if your outcome is reps to fatigue and they had three left, but they misgrooved one really bad, sets over. Right. You know what yeah. I mean? So like it, the idea that there's noise in a data set isn't just, oh, we botched it and the machine malfunctioned. That, that certainly happens. But yeah, I mean, dude, people misgroove reps and sometimes it's during the testing visit right and like that shit you got to deal with
0: yeah and it, and it is what it is you know yeah uh so, so yeah i mean I, I think uh i think the benefits of open science are enormously larger than than the drawbacks to it i think that the current system is i wouldn't say completely broken beyond repair but i think that it is incredibly easy to conceive of a publication system that would just be better, way better, uh, on every conceivable level. Um, and, and I think that just institutional inertia is, is the main thing holding us back right now.
1: Yeah. And there, there is an organization called Stork uh, that that's kind of leading the charge, pushing more people in the field of exercise science and kinesiology toward more of these open science methods.
0: Yeah. It stands for, uh, society for transparency, openness, and replication in kinesiology.
1: Yeah. So I, I think the good news is, you know, we, we've we just spent an hour talking about uh, the various benefits of, of this open science concept in this movement. And I think one of the really positive things that we can put in there to kind of wrap up the conversation is that people in, in our field are are kind of leading the charge there. And, and it definitely looks like there's going to be some progress made uh, in the years to come. And there's some really, really smart, really solid people behind that that organization. So. Should be good stuff on the horizon, for sure. A, a rare instance of Eric Trexler with the optimism.
0: <laughs> uh, do we want to push forward, or is this just a fireside chat about open science?
1: Uh, let's do. Let's give the people something a little bit lighter. Let's skip right to the end and talk about our most hilarious gym fails. Sure. I feel like that would lighten the mood a bit.
0: Yeah, I can. Uh, I, I can lead this one off.
1: Yeah, go for it.
0: So. Pretty early in my training career, I've talked about this on the podcast before. Uh, some of the folks I trained with were big time West Side guys, and that was that was my introduction to powerlifting. And th- these these folks uh, kind of took Louis's ideas and cranked them up to thirteen. So you know, basically, like max effort day was max effort day, dynamic effort day was a max effort day, but with an enormous amount of band tension. And then you would like do the speed work. Um, And they, you know, basically took what Louis said about, hey, bands are good for all of these various reasons. And and the thinking was essentially, well, if bands are good, more bands must be better. So we used an ass load of band tension on pretty much everything. And um, so once upon a time, uh, we were doing rack pulls and we had just gobs and gobs of band tension. And I was, if memory serves the only person in our group that pulled conventional, uh, or no, 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 there was one other conventional puller, but he was like five, five. Um, so I was the only like average height person who pulled conventional. And so we were doing rack pulls and, and I, I'm not just like height flexing right now. This will be relevant. Um, we had, God, probably like five, 600 pounds of band tension on the bar, just like multiple doubled heavy bands. Uh, and it was like fairly high rack pulls as well. And so it wound up being like most people were working with like a four inch range of motion. And I was working with like an eight inch range of motion. Um, and as we were warming up, uh, you know, we were, we were doing reps and the the power rack we were working out of wasn't bolted down. And you know, we were in like the actual cage part of the power rack, and there were weights on the back of the power rack, but obviously they weren't providing a counterbalance against a lifting force on the front of the rack. And so as we're warming up with all of this band tension, um I did a rep, I stood at lockout for a second, realized like Wait a second, why is the bar continuing to feel lighter in my hands? And it's because like the band tension was sufficient and I was just tall enough that it it was like basically lifting the front of the rack up off the ground like the the tension of the bands pulling against it. Um and so like this was a big ass power rack and it just tipped it backwards. Uh there was a mirror behind the rack. It shattered the mirror. Uh it was a cinder block wall. The rack was, like, tipping fast enough that it, like, pretty significantly chipped some of the cinder block. Um, (laughs) And then, basically, like, the whole gym had to be rearranged for, like, two weeks to get the rack away from the wall so that repairs could be done on the wall. And then, like, the gym had to pay for another mirror, and, like, mirrors aren't cheap. Um, And this was also, like... 5pm so it was peak gym time (laughs) the whole thing was full like I, I was 14 maybe 15 at the time so like I was I was the only like young teenager in there and there's just like all of these adults glaring at me disapprovingly and in hindsight I'm not like that embarrassed about it because I wasn't the person who decided to do like heavy tension block pull or heavy tension rack pulls and like it's not my fault that I was the only like average height conventional deadlifter in our group. It could have happened to anyone, but at the time I was completely mortified and that, that is far and away the most, uh, destructive gym fail I've ever had.
1: Yeah. So fortunately my gym fail wasn't as destructive, but it, it definitely had the potential to be, um, uh, in terms of human cost, <laughs> uh, So, you you know, if you ever like watch a documentary about like old rock stars and they're like, hey, what happened, you know, this particular event? And they go, well, it was the 80s and there was a lot of cocaine around. (laughs) So my story goes back to the late 2000s and there were a lot of pre-workouts on the market. Um, Dude, you remember the late 2000s? Every pre-workout was just like, what is the most intense pre-workout that we could make without killing someone? Yeah, yeah. Or with only killing a few people.
0: Yeah. Numbers were way more limited than the scaremongering mainstream media would lead you to believe. Yeah. Uh, it's not like gym goers were dropping dead left and right. But it's also not that gym goers weren't dropping dead.
1: Right. Yeah. And I mean, like, yeah, it was it was pretty messed up. But uh, yeah, it was the late 2000s. Um Dude, I was obsessed with lifting at the time. It was the only thing that I actually was interested in or cared about. Um and yeah, so I, I was on the campus of a university. I I don't want to get anybody fired, so I'll leave it vague which one. But I think I think they just forgot that there was this gym that existed in a basement of a dorm. I don't there's no way they knew about it. <laughs> there's no way. So like when I say a gym, I mean you open the door. And there's a bunch of free weights in there. There's no front desk. There's no staff. There's no check-in. It's just a room with a bunch of metal in it. And I just, there were no windows, you know? So I went down there at like two or three in the morning and was just like, I got a lot of energy. I'm all hopped up on pre-workouts. Let's just go for it. And so it's like, you know, 3 a.m., no one around, no windows in the basement of a building. No one could hear you scream. And, uh, dude, I just, like, pancaked myself with a one rep max bench, like, with clips on the bar. There was no tipping it. Like, I I probably, like, you know, not to be dramatic, I probably could have just rolled it down, but it was, like, a good 98% of my max Mm -hmm. that I just barely misgrooved, and I just got pancaked. And uh, as I could feel this happening, I was, like, you know, when I say pancaked, it was for a split second. Like I was pinned and I had the only genuine, honest to God, fight or flight response that I've ever experienced in my life. <laughs> and if you've never had a real one, it's wild. Like, I really believe that if there were twice the weight on that bar, I still would have got it. Mm-hmm. The, 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 intense fight or flight response, like I was pinned and then the bar was up. It was the wildest thing I've ever experienced. I've never experienced anything like it. So it was a potential gym fail. And then after it, I was like, what am I doing down here? (laughs) Like, that could have been a really, uh, a really unpleasant night for me.
0: That, uh, it's fucking scary, dog. Yeah. So I, I haven't, I I haven't had anything that scary happen. Um, but I tore a peck uh doing some some Benji centrics I believe, with four ninety-five. Mm. Um so you know, it it was like super max, but not like crazy super max. Like I I think my max at the time was like four sixty five give or take. Uh but it, it was definitely more than, than I could push off of me. And it was definitely more than I could push off of me with a torn peck. Uh and it, it's it was one of those like time dilating things where, you know, I feel I feel the pec go and I'm like this is a problem mm. and then I stopped to consider I don't have a spotter uh, this is an even bigger problem and like it, it it felt like 30 seconds between when I could feel the the pec let go and when I was just positive my impending demise was coming and you may be listening to this and thinking Greg why were you doing eccentric bench without a spotter it's because I had fucking pins up. uh. Like, <laughs> you know, I was just doing eccentrics to the pins. This was like my fourth set. I knew the fucking pins were there, uh. but it, it's, it was kind of like that same fight or flight response that you were talking about. If you've ever played a video game with bullet time mode, that's what I felt like I was in because it couldn't have been more than a quarter second between my <laughs> peck letting go and the bar making contact with the pins. But that quarter second felt like it, it was a minute and a half and I was like, I don't have a fucking will. Like, how long will it take for people to get here to pull this off of me? Uh, the music's really loud. If I scream, is anyone gonna hear it? Like, there was enough time for all of those thoughts to go through my mind, and then it's like, clink, clink, <laughs> with the bar <laughs> hits the bins. <laughs> and I felt so fucking stupid. Um, but like, I, I was, I was shook. Like, I had a wild fight or flight response. Like, I went in the bathroom and. My, uh, like my pupils were like, my eyes were just completely black because my pupils were completely dilated. Uh, it was the craziest feeling.
1: Yeah. It's pretty wild, man. Well, I I tell you what, we, uh, we're probably about at the end here, right?
0: Yes, sir. Uh, so thank you for listening to this episode of the stronger by science fireside chat, uh, fireside chat series. If you enjoyed it, uh, leave us a rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, If you're listening on YouTube, give us a thumbs up, drop a comment, that does help with traffic to some degree. If there are any questions that you'd like to hear us discuss in a fireside chat, or if there are any lifting questions you'd like to hear us discuss uh, on a regular regular Stronger by Science podcast, if Eric ever wants to have me back as a temporary guest co-host, you can ask those at tiny.cc SBSQA. And uh, that's about it. Hope you are enjoying life, staying safe, and we will talk to you again soon.
1: Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit strongerbyscience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.